Hello, welcome to Philosophy Gets Schooled. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. Uh, we're recording this episode in June 2022. This episode's all about metaethics, specifically about moral realism. So we'll be thinking about what metaethics is, sorting out various terms such as moral realism, cognitivism, naturalism and non-naturalism, thinking about figures from the past such as David Hume and G. E. Moore and perhaps some others, and talking through various motivations and problems for particular realist positions. We'll also see what else we get onto as always. This is part one. Um, there is going to be a part two of Metaethics in depth. That's going to be about uh, topics in moral anti-realism. Joining me in this episode, we have Paul Moorbridger from King Edward's School in Birmingham. Hi, Paul. Uh, hi, Simon. Uh, and Ben Jones from King Edward's the Sixth College in Stourbridge. Hi, Ben. Hello again. Great to have the two of you with us. And not only is it a King Ed's theme, uh, but we should probably tell everyone that as well as Ben teaching at King Ed's in Stourbridge, Paul and I went there to study our A-levels many, many years ago. So hello to everyone listening from King Ed's in Stourbridge and King Ed's in Birmingham. Uh, Hope you're okay. Uh, And indeed, if you're going to school at any King Ed's school anywhere around the world, hello to you too. Okay, so we're going to talk about metaethics and moral realism today. Um, metaethics appears in all the main A-level curricula and IB. It isn't in Scottish hires, but it might be useful to listen to this all the same. There's a lot to sort out. Plenty of isms, lots of overlapping material. Moral realism, anti-realism, naturalism, non-naturalism, intuitionism, emotivism, and so on. Across this episode and the other episode on metaethics and moral anti-realism, We'll try and sort it all out for you. So in the other episode, we'll be thinking about Mackey's error theory in detail, emotivism, and topics like that. Uh, In fact, uh, Ben and Paul, before recording this, we've been discussing how hard some students uh, find this material. Do do your students find this hard in general? Um, Well, yes, they do, Simon. They they really do. I sometimes try and sweeten the pill by saying uh, it's hard, but it's kind of... It's the kind of the philosophical connoisseurs sort of philosophy. This is the sort of ethics you can feel like really clever about understanding uh, if and when you understand it. So that's the kind of carrot I dangle before them. Um, but it is hard. It is really hard. And I think a lot of the, the time it's just about trying to get your head around the terms. And actually, I try and introduce a little bit. I try and make it um, approachable for them to understand even what meta ethics might mean. So let's analyze mm-hmm. that. word, And we talk about meta. And obviously, Meta's quite sort of newsworthy at the moment since it's become the new kind of Facebook. So I don't know if Zuckerberg has helped us there or not helped us. But I suppose what we start to do is we start to talk about why Meta might be Meta, why he might have gone for that. And obviously, there's a sense, isn't there, that uh, he's trying to design some sort of new world for us all to, to inhabit, which is somehow different, somehow other to our, to our current world, maybe above it or beyond it in some mm-hmm. sort of way which links into its original Greek meaning, of course. And actually also the students themselves use the word meta in their own little slang. If you listen in, I don't know if uh, Ben does this. I'm not sure if undergraduates are are the same with you, but you'll sometimes sometimes hear them say, oh, that's a bit meta. And you ask them what they mean by that. (laughs) And it tends to mean that something is sort of self-referential in a way. A good example of this, I suppose, is the most meta film, as it were, uh, is Inception, which is, a, I think, a, a film about a dream within a dream within a dream within a dream within a dream, uh, and so on. And so 
there's a kind of sense they've got this word meta that they're, they're aware of and that they kind of use and it has kept, got within it this kind of sense of standing back hovering above being somehow and also kind of self-referential and i guess if you put that all together it's a bit of a squeeze but you can sort of say well actually look what meta ethics is all about it's just asking questions about what is it that we do when we do ethics because we've been doing loads of ethics. I think, I don't know if Ben's the same, but I always do meta-ethics after we've done normative ethics. So we've been doing lots and lots of ethics. What's been going on when we've been doing that? And I try and introduce the idea of like, meta-ethics through various kind of analogies. I'm not sure how successful they are. <laughs> but you might imagine suddenly we've turned in, we've been doing a lot of ethics. We've been involved in the game of ethics. What if we imagine ourselves as suddenly becoming like, expert commentators in the football? where you stand back from the game and unpick exactly what's going on and somehow remove from the action. You're not a player anymore. You're, you're a spectator, but more, even more than that, you're kind of a summariser. Another one I've used, which is perhaps less, um, less approachable, is the idea of a kind of public autopsy. If you remember sort of the way that they used to do it back in the day when they were learning about uh, mm-hmm. the body um, and Rembrandt's got the famous one of Dr. Tulp. Um, but sort of laying bare the flesh, the bones, the arteries that kind of make the kind of ethics work. So that's what we're kind of doing. We have this minute analysis of what's actually going on or, or simply, I don't know, something like taking your phone apart and looking at the workings and saying, let's try and understand how this thing actually works. Yeah, we've been making it work. We've done our Kantian ethics. We've done our utilitarianism. We've had our normative theories. Let's actually examine those things. But it's the basic thing. What's going on when we do ethics? Okay, great. Thanks, uh, Paul. Uh, ben, anything from you? Yeah, I think that I think that it is right. You've got to understand what what is really meant by meta, and the, the way that I normally approach it is by trying to think about a sort of iceberg of moral debates that we have and how we actually engage with moral debates. So, if we take an ordinary everyday moral debate, because we're used to having moral debates in our lives. Um, let's take something like if I told a lie for some reason and then we were discussing whether or not it was okay for me to tell that lie, we would probably start by just looking at the particular ins and outs of what the lie was, what the result of it was, why I was telling the lie. We're focusing very much on me and that particular occasion and some other factors. But largely what that is, is, is to put it into philosophical terms, that's our applied ethics. That's us attempting to solve a real-world philosophical problem uh, or moral problem. What we then get is, as you start to discuss that, it might be that one of you raises the issue of, well, you told that lie and, and there was a chance that it might have really upset somebody if they'd have found out. And what if everybody did that? Then everybody would be miserable. They wouldn't know whether anybody was telling the truth. And the world would be such a terrible place if we're all as dishonest as that. And I might pick up on that and say, well, oh, so what you seem to be saying is that you think that something's wrong just because it makes people upset. Well, I don't agree. I don't think that's got anything to do with what makes something right or wrong. Now we've shifted to the next level down of the iceberg. We're at the normative ethics level of the iceberg, where we're actually what we're arguing about is the principles upon which we are discussing the applied issue, if you like. At some point, you come across somebody who is listening to this discussion. They're normally kind of a bit tired and fed up with this discussion that we've been having for a long time. And they get really philosophical about it and say, well, what's the point in what you're discussing anyway? It's all just opinion anyway, isn't it? I mean, it's all just like, it's all subjective. It's all relative. 
and other similar things. And, um, you know, it's just a social construct, isn't it? I mean, morality is just a social construct. Well, we've then shifted to another level because they're even questioning the very basis of those principles upon which we have been started to make these judgments. And so they're questioning the nature of morality itself. What is morality when it comes down to it? And the interesting thing is, is that even then we haven't necessarily answered the question. So you get questions within questions within questions, as, as usual, we were talking about inception earlier, you get kind of questionception, where there's this idea of, even if I do agree that morality is just a social construct, it's nothing that we find in nature, it's just a social thing that we agree upon. So what? Does that make it any less true? Does it make it any, uh, does it mean that lying is now suddenly permissible? Um it doesn't even necessarily tell you that very quickly. So what I, we actually discover is we end up discussing issues that cover everything from the origins of morality and where it actually came from, if you want to call it, in our natural history um, and in our social history and all that sort of stuff. You can talk about whether or not it's tied in somehow with our biology, but then you can also talk about the nature of the language that we use. What is it trying to actually do? What am I doing when I use that language? What kinds of facts are relevant to morality? And why is it that we always seem to pick out similar sorts of facts when we talk about morality? I tend not to pick out colour facts or smell facts. Why is it that I seem to pick out facts about people's character or their behaviour or the results of their actions? These are things which you can't dismiss quickly. And even if you do want to end up with the, well, it's all subjective view, you can't just go straight there. There's a lot more legwork to do than just straight, that's like your opinion, dude, and kind of leave it at that. And that's kind of the job of the metaethicist, I suppose. Great. Uh, thanks, both of you. That was really helpful, uh, Ben, building on what, what what Paul said. Yeah, just some thoughts from me. I mean, yeah, I mean, you're right uh, from both of them. I mean, think, Paul, you said it's kind of like it's the connoisseurs kind of uh, kind of area of philosophy. I mean, this is basically what the cool kids do in philosophy. So, so metaethics is is what I did my PhD on uh, and what I mainly work on. And in the last 40, 50 years, this is where all the cool kids in philosophy have been. This is so exciting in the way that you just, just um, brought out, Ben, because it brings in so many things. It brings in ontology and metaphysics and philosophy of language. It brings in biology and philosophy of mind and epistemology. So it's kind of a, this really heady brew, this really exciting cocktail where we're thinking about something which is kind of an essential part of our lives, so morality. And even though it's called metaethics, lots of people nowadays are then thinking about all these questions in relation to the philosophy of art and epistemology about what we ought to believe and what we ought to think. But because it's got all of those things brought in, it can also be quite daunting and, and difficult. And I suppose so. one thought from me, Something I say to, to my students, and I imagine it's kind of doubled if you're a, a 17 year old coming at this for the very first time. Kind of, you want to know, yeah, but what really essentially is metaethics? Is it about on the ontology, about what stuff exists and the nature of it? Is it is it essentially about language and how we speak about things? Is it what we can know? And I suppose the answer to that question is both the exciting yet daunting answer is it's about all of those things. No one of them is the is the prime way of thinking about metaethics. Although when I'm teaching, I always lead with the ontological and the, the metaphysical. But it's not as if there's some sort of 
central philosophical committee that should sit down and say, right, this is what metaethics is going to be. It's going to be ontological, or it's going to be about philosophy of language, or because so many people from have used their different interests to bring to bear on this, you know, this huge phenomenon of of ethical judgment and motivation, right? They think about it in different ways. So it can be kind of exciting, but also a bit a bit daunting. Um, right. So with that said, uh, exciting yet daunting. So that's kind of helps us situate meta-ethics. So does anyone want to explain or have a have a first go about moral realism, what we might mean by that? Yeah, I could um have a little go there. Just just to sort of tie into the thought of how daunting it is and why it might be daunting. We've used a lot of technical jargon already. Obviously, it's hopefully familiar to uh, listeners to this podcast from from previous episodes. But it's one of the few uh, areas of philosophy where I actually set um, kind of vocab tests as if I were a foreign language teacher, just to make sure we kind of hammer out the key terms. I think we'll hopefully elucidate some of them later on. But absolutely, everyone out there who's finding the head spinning a little bit, do do make sure you've got a good glossary to refer to because it can get really confusing. And we already sort of, yeah, we, we have got a new a new set of terms here, haven't we? moral realism, what is moral realism? I mean, it's pretty good for us to try and keep this as simple as possible. I guess the idea of moral realism is just really moral facts are somehow real. They're real properties or real features. They exist. And that's kind of the, the basic ontological question, isn't it? And then, which, which you were referring to, uh, other previously signed and that's the sort of when we're talking about that in class we'll often say well actually give me a moral sentence give me a sentence that we might take an example uh, such as you know you're wrong to shove past your friend in the corridor or something like that when we take a look at that example of it was wrong to push past someone in the corridor you say well actually let's think about that you've made a a claim and it sounds like that claim is about something it's about that being wrong. And when you're a moral realist, you're saying, well, that that wrongness in some way is a fact that exists, difficult to, exactly to pinpoint how, and we're going to spend some time thinking about how we might pinpoint that. But we're just really committed to that claim that it is wrong in some way, and it's true of the world that it is wrong. And we can say that objectively uh, and absolutely, if you're a moral realist, that that wrongness is something absolutely intrinsic to the way that we, we do morality. And so it's just this kind of real commitment to the existence, the truth, uh, the reality of, of moral, moral judgments, uh, moral facts and moral properties. And I think it's very intuitively, it's where a lot of our students come from. I've got to be careful about using the word intuitive, but at the, it is, it's where you want to come from. It's what you want to believe in. Uh, unlike the the cynic that Ben was talking to about, you know, the, the one who's saying, well, it's all subjective, isn't it? And it's all just a... I think a lot of us instinctively feel like we're on the side of, of the moral realist as opposed to to the moral anti-realist, as we're going to learn perhaps to call him, or the, or the nihilist or whoever it was that, that Ben was kind of channeling there. So that's kind of it. It's that real commitment to the the reality of, of moral properties. Great. And in fact, just to go on from that, and then I'll bring... Ben in, yes. Yeah, so, so that 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 example is a good one. Um, so, you know, you see someone, they push past someone in a corridor, and you say, perhaps to them or or to a 
third person, your friend you're standing next to, that was wrong of, of them to, to, to push past that person. Now, of course, the realist will say, of course, that, that claim, that judgment might be false, right? It might be true, right? But all they're saying, they're not committed to the, the truth or falsity of any particular claim. They're just saying that there are properties or features or facts, any of these ontological bits that you might see floating around in textbooks, stuff, right? There's either stuff or properties of stuff, and they're just committed to the idea of there being moral stuff or moral properties, right? And perhaps you got it right. Perhaps it was wrong of that person to push past someone in the corridor. And I think you've um, you've hit on kind of a really important motivation as as well, Paul, because it seems just every day, right? We, we, we have... I mean, there's that very pejorative term being judgmental, right? <laughs> but of course, we're making judgments, we're making ideas all the time, right? We're watching TV or reading something on the internet or seeing friends in corridors, and we're making these claims all the time, right? We might be saying they're wrong to push past, or that was very that was a very courageous thing to do, or just to switch to aesthetic examples, that person's hat is so elegant, right? All of these claims, we're making them all the time, all these evaluative claims and it seems that uh, unlike ben's character um we want to say look there's something going on here right there's some people are getting it right and some people are getting it wrong and there's something to be getting right or wrong there's something about the world where we can say yeah there's kind of wrongness there or there's elegance or there's courage or whatever else i think that's a really big motivation for for being a, a, a realist ben any thoughts from from you on this yeah, I think I think Paul's right that like if you talk to a lot of students nowadays and just a lot of people in general that there tends to be a, a moral realist streak within people even when I think people tend to think of themselves as a bit more not necessarily fully anti-realist you know that they wouldn't necessarily put it in those terms but people are happy to kind of be a bit more open and liberal and tolerant about people with different moral views. So, you know, we talk about this, but, you know, th- there will be a lot of people that I will, that I've taught over the years. I think probably way more when I first started teaching about 15 years ago, there was way more people who were willing to just go down this route of, oh, well, it's all kind of relative, you know, that it's really hard to say that things are really definitely right or wrong because, you know, it's just the culture you brought up in and all that sort of stuff. But nowadays, people are more quick to admit from from when I've been teaching them. Um, and even back then, people did have a point where you just push them far enough, and and they become moral realists very quickly. So if if you'd say things, I mean, the, the examples are always pretty, you know, unpleasant and things. But you'd sort of have to say, so you re- you really think that morality. There's no truth in morality at all. And it's just our sort of local customs that determine right and wrong. And you say, and they say, yeah, you know, probably. And you go, well, that's fine. So would you have stood outside a concentration camp and told the people in there, look, you're just looking at it in the wrong way. Like what's happening here isn't morally wrong. It's just, it's just that this, this is the local custom for the people in this town, that they think that this is how you should be treated and you should be a bit more tolerant towards that. And at that point, they go, no, that's disgusting. How dare you? Why would you do that? And I go, well, according to you, it would be a permissible thing to do. It wouldn't be a crass thing to do. It would actually be quite helpful to let them know 
that what was happening to them wasn't one of the most grotesque injustices that's ever happened in the history of humanity. And, and actually, the, they very quickly go, well, no, I mean, obviously, obviously, I draw a line somewhere. And it's like, right, so we're not saying that we all believe that every single moral judgment we make is rooted in hard fact down to the tiny detail, that literally every judgment I make is absolutely correct and I can relate it to a fact. I can still be wrong and there be moral facts. It's just that when you push far enough, you will find that there is almost like a bedrock of moral facts, which even when people are disagreeing, you find that maybe they've just paying attention to different moral facts or that they just misled or misunderstood some of those moral facts. It's not that there that you know that there are none necessarily. Yeah, good. And I think perhaps we'll talk about this in the anti-realism episode when we come on to Mackie, but just to make the link, then there's that really interesting debate about uh, when Mackie's talking about the argument from relativity uh, when he's thinking about error theory, which is, you know, what what's the cut? What's the level of specificity? Because there might be uh, at some level quite, you know, quite profound differences in terms of local customs. But as you were putting it, Ben, there might be something deeper or or... Uh, some sort of bedrock where, in fact, there's a lot more that's shared moral culture, where even if people are diverging, we can say they're wrong to diverge and there's a kind of common thought, right? And this is going back really to to, to Paul's example of there are some things that are right and wrong, you just don't shove past people in corridors, right? Unless there's some really good reason that then we'd accept as a good justification. There's a fire or they're going to run to save someone or whatever else. Right, can I just jump in? There's, there's an example that we often discuss, actually, when we're discussing uh, moral relativism. And it's it's the quite hot topic, really, especially for teachers of um, uh, FGM, female genital mutilation, because um, it's the one thing, actually, which all teachers, if they suspect it's happening, they have to uh, phone the police directly, immediately, rather than the normal way if we suspect something dreadful is happening, we tell our designated safeguarding lead who goes off and you know, deals with it all. Um, so even if we suspect someone's making a bomb in the toilets or something, uh, the right thing to do is to contact the designated safeguarding lead <laughs> and um, they, they will you know, inform the proper authorities. But FGM is seen as something so you know, damaging and, and alarming and grim that clearly yeah, it has to be immediately. We have a duty and we're told every year about this as we have our, our training updates. You've got to phone the police straight away if you suspect that's happening. So obviously we discussed that um, and, and everyone in the room, so this is uh, the example that, that we use rather than perhaps the Holocaust example. Everyone says, yeah, this is, this is dreadful. This is awful. Of course, it's the right thing that you must immediately uh, phone people up and you know, stop this abominable practice. But then actually you look at some people who will uh, defend FGM um, Perhaps you know, from cultures where where it's it's kind of practiced, and obviously you look at the reasons that are given for that, and they'll often just be kind of tradition and all the rest. You know, this is our way of life, blah blah blah, and you just get this, the standard uh, opposition between you, know, you do this, we do that. It's just matter of custom. But even then, if you actually look at what's being said, uh, when you look at further reasons that might be given, there'll often be a kind of background reason, which is you know the a more important sort of overarching reason, which is some sort of sense of fidelity within marriage or something, which might well be something that 
people from every culture will sort of say, well, you shouldn't really cheat on your partner. That seems to be a bad sort of thing to do. So even in these, even when, as you, as you pointed out earlier, Simon, these things might be, uh, practices might seem to kind of get it wrong in quite horrendous ways. They're at least kind of linking into an overarching moral principle that maybe is shared more widely than the kind of, than the diversity of it, of, of uh, different practices would suggest so that that's a particularly that example seems to really stick with our with our kids and it, it sort of sticks with me actually as well yeah good example listen one more thought from me just as something for students and teachers to think about in the classroom because we're going to move away from relativism but i i can't move away from it uh without mentioning this and it's kind of an exercise to think through in the classroom, uh, students and, and teachers, if you want to, which is, so it was the, it was the word that, that Ben was using a few times, which was toleration, right? So we might tolerate other attitudes. But of course, toleration might well be a moral stance. And so the question is, if you're tolerating other attitudes, is that something that everyone should do? And if it is, I mean, can you be a relativist about toleration, I suppose, is the is the question that might be an interesting one to think through. But we're going to leave that there, right? So thanks both for discussing metaethics and then moral realism. And we'll see you in the next part when we're going to think about, we'll start to think about types of moral realism. And welcome back. Before we move into this segment, this is just to remind you to check out our website, so if you search for Simon Kirchin, K-I-R-C-H-I-N, you'll get to my own personal website. And if you click on one of the tabs, it says Pod Schools. And you'll see I've got a list of topics uh, and when we're recording them. If you want to um, contact us with questions and comments with a recording coming up, please do so because we'd like to include questions and comments from you. If you find that we've already got an episode on a topic you want to ask a question about, please email me anyway and we'll get people back in the room and we'll just do some Q&A sessions. Who knows, I might have Paul and Ben in in about a year's time when we'll live through metaethics again, which I'm sure they'll sure they'll enjoy. So, Paul, Ben, we've discussed uh, moral realism and introduced metaethics. Um, so just to review where we've got to so far, we've got applied ethics, normative ethics, metaethics, and metaethics is really kind of asking what's going on with morality anyway, this, this kind of everyday practice of human judgment, human motivation, what's going on behind it, are there, you know, it seems as if we, we think that there are moral properties or facts or features of the world, are there, what's going on with our language, we haven't talked much about that yet, but is there really some stuff out there, some moral stuff moral properties and what's its nature that's a question we've asked but left hanging so let's actually then think about that question a little bit more right what's the nature of of stuff that we think might exist if we're a if we're a realist so should we start with the the moral naturalist position ben do you want to have a crack at trying to define this for us and introduce it to us moral naturalism is this idea or kind of moral natural realism um is this idea that there are such things as moral facts. So there are properties, states of affairs in the world that are actually good, that are actually bad. But that these moral facts are a part of 
the natural world. They are natural properties. Now, that itself, um, I was doing a bit of background reading on this and one book that I was looking at that said, no, realism, you know, naturalism thinks that they're moral properties are natural properties. What do we mean by a natural property? And they gave about seven different definitions of where philosophers have disagreed about what we mean by a natural property, just like philosophers can't just stick with anything. But the point, I think, for this discussion, um, for, for the moral philosophy discussion, would be handy to just think of them as we're not trying to make reference to things like goodness as anything which is above and beyond or outside of the normal parameters of the physical universe. And in particular, it's obviously going to be some sort of property or fact about us and and or our interactions. It's got to be something about what we are, what we're made of and the way that we interact. It's got to be something like that. If we want to kind of put this into contrast, because I think it sometimes helps, especially if we've got religious studies students and things like that listening, you've got to remember that if you kind of think, well, what other kinds of facts are there? For a long time in moral philosophy, morality was either kind of being dictated by God. So you've got something which isn't a natural fact being the source of all goodness. Or you've got this other side, which was still actually in religious ethics anyway, which was massively influenced by Plato. So there was always this idea of even, you know, kind of God taking over from the idea of the platonic form of the good, kind of goodness itself outside of time and space, this eternal goodness in itself. And that was obviously having an influence on the way people thought. And it's kind of modern philosophy and um, the Enlightenment era and those sorts of eras where people said, look, we want to know why things are right and wrong. We think that right and wrong are real things. We think that good and bad are real things. And we don't want to base it on superstition, hearsay, tradition. We really want to know the roots. And so what could they make reference to? The only thing that they could make reference to was people and objects and things in the world. And so the idea is, is that you take concepts like good, for example, and you try and find those things in the world that, if you like, are good. And then from examining those, you should be able to whittle it down and notice that actually goodness is just basically the same as some other property that's in the world. And that's what we would call a reductive account of moral realism uh, and uh, moral naturalism. So the classic example of this is utilitarians um, saying that goodness is happiness. So whenever you look at whenever you're talking about something being good you're ultimately talking about the fact that it makes people happy and so goodness and happiness basically two names for the same thing ultimately the other way of thinking about it is that you can't really just reduce the word goodness down to having a particular property like being happy but instead, and this one's a bit, a bit trickier, it's more that human beings, for example, have certain capacities like the ability to, to grow and flourish or the ability to use reason. And goodness is something which is connected to that. It kind of emerges out of that. But it doesn't mean that just reason is goodness or developing your capacities is goodness. It might be connected to it, 
but it's not identical to it. That probably that will probably need a bit more fleshing out, I guess. But that's that's the basic idea. Goodness is basically a natural property, or is connected to natural properties. Okay, that's great. Thanks, Ben. Um, Paul, why don't you come in and then I'll I'll say a few things as well. Yeah, well, I just thought I was uh, very um, agreeing with what Ben was saying. One one sort of point of emphasis that I try and always bring out that I think his account did pretty well there is also. These, uh, if you're a moral naturalist, you're going to be thinking that actually there's nothing supernatural or weird about how we might come to know about uh, moral properties, moral facts. They should be open to some sort of uh, ordinary investigation, possibly even kind of, I don't know, ultimately, if we think about empirical investigation, we might say if it's something that we can confront with our senses or whatever, we're going to say, well, perhaps we can ultimately use science to discover what these moral properties might be. So we've got that kind of, there seems to be an epistemic claim to it, doesn't there? There's, we can know about these um, in ordinary kinds of ways. They're going to make themselves known to us um, just through the usual set of senses that we've got, not some sort of special faculty, which you know, we're going to discuss later. And just that that thought that they really are, you know, there's this kind of that commitment to moral realism. There, there are objective facts and that these facts are natural facts and we can know about them in ordinary ways. And just seeing that kind of, as a con- those three things as a kind of conjunction uh, of ideas to kind of sum up what this thing, uh, moral naturalism at, it, at its heart is. Uh, of course, it's, it's really nice, as Ben did, to connect it into the normative ethics that they've already done uh, often. So we'll standardly have done utilitarianism before we meet uh, meta-ethics. And of course, I think quite often when you read, say, uh, Bentham or Mill, Bentham's probably the, the clearest, actually. It's very obvious when you get the normative ethical theory that there does seem to be a meta-ethical commitment as well to the principle of utility. So we get that nature has placed mankind under the governance of two sovereign masters, all that sort of stuff. And we see that actually pain and pleasure are the things, are you know ordinary things that we meet in the world, we all experience them, then they're natural properties that we all experience. And you can see how it might be quite attractive. And I think it's quite attractive to the students when we start talking about moral naturalism to say, well, actually, it's quite intuitive. Well, we've got to get rid of using that word. It's quite, there's an instinctive attraction to saying, actually, the thing that is wrong about the pain that's being caused to you is the pain, the fact that it's kind of painful. And so you can sort of see, well, the moral naturalist seems to be onto something here. If you're identifying, you know, on the utilitarian case, goodness with with uh, creating the, the greatest happiness, or bad with with causing pain, there does seem to be something quite obvious about the fact that when someone causes you pain, the thing that's wrong about it is the pain that's being caused, and there's nothing particularly mysterious about that. Uh, we don't need to call in any kind of special faculty in order to try and to spot the wrongness, we can just experience it very directly. So I think that's, there's a real nice attraction to it, especially when you start to link it back to uh, the normative ethical theories that you've been studying. And when you, because I think a lot of the students have sensed that there is that meta-ethical underpinning and they've wanted to talk about it and they've wanted to kind of reveal it. And it seemed like a background that has to be discussed at some point and maybe hasn't been adequately discussed during the sort of normative ethical discussions that we've been having. Great, that's really helpful from from both of you. So then, just to summarise, give us a bit of a pause and a, and a, and a breather, perhaps in a, in a slightly 
di- different way. So um, Ben was mentioning kind of religious ethics. So if you're thinking about being a moral realist, you might want to be a supernaturalist and say, what is it for something to be good or bad or right or wrong or elegant? It's because it's dictated or commanded by God or the gods or whatever. But many people nowadays don't don't like that. So then we settle on kind of naturalism and we've got that, as you mentioned, Paul, it links nicely to something like utilitarianism and, and pleasure. So what's wrong about shoving that person in the corridor? It's because you shoved them and there's a bit of pain on their arm or perhaps they are that they feel very embarrassed, right? And that's something we can study through psychology, right? And there's a really nice attraction to, if you're a realist, remember, so you think there are right and wrong, good and bad properties of the world, you can say, well, you know, we can pretty much pick them out, right? It's the pain that's being caused, the embarrassment, the, the whatever it is. Assuming there's no other factors here, they had to, someone had to race down the corridor to save someone, and then you're into utilitarian calculus territory and all of, all of that. So there's something really nice there. There are some problems that we're going to talk about those in a moment. I suppose just then to introduce, again, another stretch exercise for any students listening and and teachers. And it was there kind of sensed in in Ben's discussion. So let's just introduce it now. So often uh, people will, as as I think Ben said, the book he was reading had like seven different definitions of naturalism. And my thought was only seven. (laughs) (laughs) right so uh you know how might you define naturalism so people often go for science and the things that we can just sense so like you know i can i can look and i can see a laptop or i can see a fridge or i can see a garden or i can see people or whatever right but then when you think about science it can get pretty tricky do we mean the science we have now do we mean science 200 years ago? Because as we know, science has developed and the scientific method has developed. Do we mean the sorts of properties and features and facts that the perfect science will discover? What do we, uh, and, and do we just want to include science or just want to get rid of it entirely and just have features such as things that can obviously cause an effect, you know, other things, right? So actually what we might, define as a naturalism what might be a natural property or feature is itself interesting so the stretch exercise students is think about those sort of definitions think about other ones and how you might go about defining natural which is different from the workings and commands of god or gods and then the non-naturist option that we'll talk about a bit a bit later like how might you define naturalism but i suppose whatever we're doing as a naturalist just to put a bit of flesh on the bones i've just given the example of and following on from Paul about someone shoving past you in a corridor, there being pain or there being embarrassment. So you might kind of start with social psychology or clinical psychology, the feeling of pain and pleasure. You might then get into neuroscience and then biology and all the time, right? Using that word that Ben gave about a reduction, right? So you're going from psychology through to biology, chemistry, physics. So the what seems like the crazy position is it's okay through a few reduction skips we can get from goodness to the workings of atoms right and and then science scientists can just study those and that seems a bit weird so often naturalists don't go that far but they will be thinking about things like psychology social psychology neuroscience right when we're thinking about goodness and badness elegance gets a bit harder but that's a that's another matter right so that gives us a sense of naturalism. And 
Ben, you mentioned reductive naturalism. Should we have a go at non-reductive naturalism? Do you want to have a go at that? Right. So non-reductive naturalism, I guess. Like I said, I mean, we've mentioned like some of the some of the normative theories that we've talked about previously. I know you've got Aristotle coming up, so I won't kind of go into that too much. But if we go back to the Kant episode, for example, that's probably a good one. If you look at what Kant is talking about when he's and this and this ties in brilliantly with what Paul was saying actually, that like when you read Bentham and when you read Mill, there's already a metaethical discussion going on before you've even got down to the principle of utility or anything like that. They've already had a talk about what they think the nature of goodness is and, and all that kind of thing. And Kant does a similar thing where if you read the introduction he actually sort of sets out that he wants to find this supreme moral principle. But he also talks about, I mean, you've got to think about the really awkward title of the book. It's the groundwork of the metaphysic of morals. So it's not morals. It's the metaphysic of morals. And it's also the groundwork that's being done before you do the metaphysic of morals. So in that book, what you actually get from it is this idea that if you want to understand what is good, Ultimately, it comes down to reason, and reason is a human faculty, and it is a human faculty where if you had to work out what purpose it had, it would be to tell you what you ought to do, not what you want to do, and therefore it is the ground of morality. So as I said before, we don't just then do a sort of utilitarian connection there and say, right, so... If I want to know what goodness is, I have to use reason alone, like pure reason. Therefore, goodness is reason. No, not at all. I can use reason for all sorts of things which have no moral value at all whatsoever, like neutral, just things like I can reason about the best way to get to work. That has nothing to do with moral goodness. But nonetheless, or it's not even as if you just had reason somewhere, you just created a brain and went in a jar and went, that can reason, therefore good. It, it doesn't work that way. But goodness is rooted in reason. You can't have moral goodness unless you've got reason as part of it. And therefore, it isn't, you're not able to reduce goodness as a thing down to reason itself. But things cannot be good unless they have reason. And as reason is a real faculty of real living human beings, then it does have a natural source. It cannot be reduced to that human faculty, but it is a result of and a product of that human faculty. And therefore, it is itself, in that sense, natural. Great. Really helpful. So just to just to pause on that, because I think this is the bit where I suspect some students really struggle. And I'll say this, some university students struggle as well, not, not just... Uh, and some A-level anymore. lecturers also struggle. <laughs> I'm glad you took that one, Ben, actually. Kind of <laughs> I, 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 this is one of the areas of metaethics I leave um, well alone. <laughs> so I think that really what we're talking about here is how we characterize things, right? And where we're, how we're looking at things. So you can think about goodness and badness, rightness, wrongness, courage, kindness, and think about them as being reduced to, right? Some obviously natural things. And what you're saying is 
we want to say there are moral properties and moral facts and they're natural, but what you thought these things were, they're not really quite what you think they are. They're actually things like pleasure and pain, which are obviously natural. And that's the kind of reductive move, right? Whereas if you're non-reductive, you're saying, you're kind of sticking your neck out and saying, actually, goodness exists. It's a real thing, right? We, we can pick it out or we can fail to pick it out. But actually, what the way we want to characterize it is as being a natural thing, that goodness itself can be studied, right, by some sort of natural process. It's not some mysterious, supposed, supposedly mysterious, anyway, non-natural property or feature of the world, right? But then things get quite tricky when we're trying to distinguish between non-reductive naturalism and non-naturalism. And lots of people, including university professors, struggle with that as well. So if you're struggling at this moment, be you a student or a teacher, don't 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 worry, right? You're in good company. So before we leave it there, should we think about some problems with naturalism? So should we just think about G. Moore and his open question argument. Paul, do you want to have a go at that? Yeah, sure. I mean, in a way, we've already mentioned one of the kinds of problems with with uh, the naturalism there is just trying to say, well, what, it, almost in my mind and in my students' mind, I can think of them saying, well, just what kinds of properties are you talking about? Because we have, we've skirted around it, we've made jokes about it, but we've never actually kind of pinned down, um, given accounts of what those properties might be. And is that, that's, that's the one it's all very well to say that these things would be easy to analyse or easy to, to observe, like, like like I said. And then it's another thing to actually kind of um, go around coming up with a method for actually doing so. <laughs> and I just think it's, you know, that, that discussion itself was revealing. But G.E. Moore, of course, kind of famously uh, tells us this, this whole business of, of trying to reduce goodness to some natural property is, is, is misguided. It's you know, a naturalistic, it's a fallacy, the naturalistic fallacy. And I suppose he directs it most um, tellingly or most famously against Mill and the utilitarians. And at its heart is just this thought that take any natural property such as pleasure or the greatest happiness. If it were the case that it was the same thing as goodness, then it would be actually a, con- a contradiction to say this causes the greatest happiness, but it's not good. That would be a a flat contradiction. And so, in fact, it always remains a a kind of sensible or not ridiculous question. That's what what he means by kind of open question, I think, here. It's a sort of – it's not a a silly thing to say. This might cause the most happiness, as Mill or Bentham might say, the good does – but is it in fact good? And we've quite often committed to thinking, actually, as we remember back to the utilitarian epi- utilitarianism episode, there are actually quite a few examples where we might think that something does cause the greatest happiness, but it isn't in fact good. Um, lots of people might enjoy, maybe the, the poor kid who was uh, pushed against in the corridor was being bullied by his whole year group. We are having a great time doing it. And it's obviously caused loads of happiness, but it wasn't in fact good. But it's not, it's actually, I shouldn't really, it's a distraction to maybe talk about uh, kinds of consequences and things there. The issue is much more that it remains, it always remains an open question of any natural property to say, well, is that in fact good? And that's not a, and if it was to be the case that goodness and the property were one and the same thing, then it would not be an open question. It would be as if you were saying, is good good? 
which is clearly nonsense, well, tautology or just you're not you're not affirming anything there, are you? And so it does remain uh, an open question whether or not causing the greatest happiness is in fact good. And it's kind of when you look at it, it's quite a devastating critique. You can you can apply it kind of anywhere, uh, potentially even to sort of uh, non-natural things as well. So I'm not sure if it, if it's the naturalism that's really the the key target here, because we were talking earlier about the commands of God, for example, or we can say, well, it makes sense. Yeah, God says um, to Abraham, you should kill your son, Isaac. <laughs> Is killing your son, Isaac, good? And clearly in that case, we might worry that it wasn't. And so it doesn't seem necessarily actually to be just applicable to to natural facts. It seems to be something that you can apply beyond naturalism. But I think that's the kind of the essence of what it is. It's that idea that it always remains an open question as to whether or not whichever X you choose as your natural property uh, is in fact good. Okay, great. Thanks, Paul. Uh, ben, any thoughts from you on that? Yeah, I think I think that's what's really interesting about this. I mean, Paul explained it brilliantly there that the, the what's really interesting about this argument is you can see a little bit of a shift here taking place and I normally try and emphasize this a little bit with the students that there's a little bit of a shift here that all of a sudden now G Moore is making a judgment about naturalism based upon the kinds of claims that we make if we were taking naturalism seriously um so he's now talking if you like about well what would a proposition goodness is happiness really mean if the naturalist was right and I try and sort of frame this as as a bit of a sort of like a tipping point or a fulcrum in the history of philosophy, if you like, where when you look at people before him, so when we're looking at people like Mill and Kant and Aristotle and all these sort of and Plato and and but specifically if we're looking at naturalists, if we're looking at people like Mill, their real issue was about well what is what is goodness and how do I then use the fact that I know what goodness is to then make good, correct moral judgments. So what are the facts? And then to use the old Bertram Russell phrase, what bears out from the facts? You know, that, that kind of thing. With G. Moore, because analytic philosophy's kicked off, G. Moore sort of says, well, look, we're now in this phase where we're really interested, not necessarily in talking directly about metaphysics and things. They've, got, they've had years of being bored to death by people reading Hegel and Kant and not understanding a word of what's going on, but some Victorian guy really, really is convinced that something's going on here. And they're fed up with it. And they say, how about we just cut the waffle? What we'll do is we'll start looking at philosophical arguments and philosophical discussions, and we'll work out what is actually going on when we use those concepts in language. And there's various ways in which this is done. It's not all just the verificationism stuff that we'll look at later, but there's a much bigger focus on, well, what am I actually doing with language when I do philosophy? Because if I don't know how the language works, and yet language is my toolkit for doing philosophy, then how am I expected to be precise with my philosophizing if I'm not precise with my language? Let's sort out and analyze the problems from this new perspective. And his big question is, we say that things are good. We say that things are right, all that sort of stuff. In particular, we use this word good. What do, what do I mean when I say the word good? And you've got now this shift. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't talk about moral properties. And it doesn't mean that Mill doesn't talk in some way, even if it's implicit, about moral language. 
But you've now got this big trend, change of trend in philosophy, where now it's trendy to talk about, well, what does moral language mean? And I really like this fact about Moore is the fact that he's talking about the nature of moral facts. He's talking about the nature of moral language, but he's flipped it so that now everybody's going to be talking about moral language and we'll, we'll kind of worry about the facts. We can almost start working out whether or not there's moral facts by worrying about whether or not the phrase moral facts means anything at all anyway. Uh, we don't have to look for them if that's just a gobbledygook phrase that doesn't mean anything. Um, so there's a real shift in the dynamic that's happening in the philosophy. And uh, this argument exemplifies that quite nicely. You know, how should we treat naturalism? Well, if it's just if if happiness is just goodness, that's a tautology. And anybody asking the question is asking a question as silly as, well, are bachelors really unmarried men? I mean, they just look foolish. Nobody who knew what the term bachelor meant would ask that question. Well, the fact that I can say, well, is it really goodness? Is happiness really good? Is goodness always really happiness? The mere fact that you don't immediately go, what on earth are you talking about? You know what goodness means. It means that there's more to say. And so the language actually reveals for him something about the world to some extent. Not necessarily it doesn't pin it down, but it opens up new possibilities of thinking about the world for him. Thanks, both. That was really, really helpful. Great explanation, Paul, and a nice um, uh, extrapolation from all that, Ben. Yes, I mean, I think more, so we should say, so so, so more produces, publishes Principia Ethica in 1903, which, you know, is nearly 120 years ago. But he sets in train lots of interesting debates through the 20th century, which we'll cover uh, in this episode, and particularly in the in the next episode when we think about anti-realism. And that's why he's kind of known as the father of modern meta metaethics, because he's got all of these thoughts going, and particularly surrounding open question argument, naturalistic fallacy, in the way you just indicated, uh, Ben. Because from that, you can go a number of different ways about how you feel about the open open question argument but i think you're both right that but there's a kind of power there in that you can ask a, a closed question which is you know you know this is a bachelor but is he an unmarried male or something which might be unobvious but still closed some sort of big complicated mathematical equation but on this one right so you know his example this is pleasurable this would maximize pleasure but is it good it feels as if it's still an open question it's a sensible question to ask and raise and there's something very important there that's going on so listen let's leave it there and then we'll pick this up in the next segment when we think about some of the problems in the open question argument and think about moral non-naturalism <laughs> And welcome back. Okay, so we've laid out metaethics and we've talked about moral realism in general and introduced moral naturalism and given you a sense there are different versions of it. And then we've gone on to G. Moore's open question argument. So between recording the previous segment and then this segment, we'd then be thinking, okay, now which way do we go? We could either talk about all the problems of the open question argument and then talk about Moore's own view, or we could do it the other way around. And I think it's a kind of revealing discussion to have because it goes back to something we were talking about earlier. There are so many interconnected and moving parts in metaethics, 
which is part of exciting, but also can be a bit daunting, that actually we could record this segment in either way, right? But what we've decided to do, everyone, is say, okay, there's an open question argument. There's some power there. Okay, so this is pleasurable or this is some natural property. Is it good or is it bad? And there seems like an open feel. So now we're going to go on to what Moore's own view is and then think about non-naturalism in general. But then we're going to backtrack. We're going to say, hang on, was the, was the open question argument any good in the first place? And then use that as a way just to think about the merits of naturalism and non-naturalism. That's the plan anyway. We'll see how far we get. Okay, so we've got Moore's open question argument. There seems something to it. There seems a power, right? This is pleasurable, but is it good? This is painful, but is it bad? That's a good question. So in that case, if we're not, if we want to be moral realists and we don't want to be supernaturalists, because as as Paul said, we can ask a kind of open question argument about God's commands, and then we're into the euthyphro dilemma. We can ask this question about naturalism. So then perhaps we've got to come up with a different version of moral realism, which gives us moral non-naturalism, or sometimes on some of the specs, it refers to intuitionism. Okay, so Ben, can I then hand over to you to pick us up, pick up the story about more and non-naturalism? Yeah. So if you think about what the open question argument's done thus far, is it's basically told us that goodness isn't reducible down to, it's not the same thing or identical to some other thing. Um, and if we put that into, into kind of language, if you like, I use the word good, I use the word happiness, but the point is that those terms are interchangeable because they're basically the same thing. But actually what Moore's saying is they're not. They're not the same thing. Goodness and happiness are two different things. And I think it's him, I think it's him anyway, who uses the example of, look, just because two things are correlated, it doesn't mean that they're identical. I think it's him that does the old, um, just because um, everything that's got a heart has got kidneys, it doesn't mean that a heart and a kidneys are, t- are the same thing. Um, I don't know if that was him or somebody else. So he's trying to kind of give these um, give this breakdown of what goodness is and everything that he's trying to break it down into. You then realise that, well, it, it can't be that because you end up back with this open question argument. And it's the weird thing about the naturalistic fallacy, I suppose, is that, first of all, it doesn't necessarily actually just apply to naturalistic qualities. And he's willing to extend it to other things as well. It's also technically not a fallacy, but that, that's the other point. <laughs> but, the, so, but it's just a name. It doesn't matter. Words don't, it's just a, words don't it's matter. Just a, it's a bit of a mistake. It was just a bit of a mistake. He got he mm. over-egged, he over-egged the custard, didn't he? But the, the thing is that what he's trying to point out is that you can't necessarily break it down to component parts. And what he wants to compare is the properties of things where you can break them down into component parts, and we'll call those um, complex properties. And because we can understand what one of those things is by understanding its component parts, then he will call that analyzable. It can be understood by analyzing what the thing is. And you can use this in both ways, because some of the examples he uses are a, a little unusual, I guess, because the one is that, you know, the usual straightforward stuff about bachelors. You can take the idea of a bachelor and then you can understand that it's an unmarried man. He also talks about a horse and he talks about how you can understand what a horse is by breaking it down into its component parts. It has to have legs and it has to have a, a mane and all this sort of stuff. So you effectively understand what a horse is by the fact that it is this composite of different things. 
he then says, but not all things that we understand about the world are like that. Because whenever I break down things into their component parts, you eventually get to a point where you've got the simplest possible unit, the smallest possible thing that can't be broken down any further. So what we also have is simple properties of things. And the really clear example he gives of this is just yellow. It doesn't matter how many times I try to describe yellow to you or even define it. Because even if I said to you, oh, it's a particular wavelength of light, blah, 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 blah. That doesn't explain to me what yellow is. It just tells me that if I wished to make something yellow, then I would have to make sure that there was this wavelength of light or whatever it may be. The whole point is, is that yellow is understood just by seeing yellow. And when I say the word yellow, I am referring to that color which also means that I cannot break yellow down into its component parts or its component concepts in order to understand what it is. And that means that we have a simple, unanalyzable concept. So what the open question argument has done then is said, well, it's not a complex, analyzable property of a thing. So therefore, it must be a simple, unanalyzable property of a thing. And this explains then why it is that a vast array of different things, of different qualities and values that we have, are all described as good, and yet they don't necessarily all share the common feature of making us happy or being based upon reason or whatever it might be. They are just good. And we can't really give much more than that. We can say, you know, if somebody says, well, why, why is pleasure good? You go, you, all you can say is well, it's just good. You would struggle to explain. You just get that it is good by experiencing it. And so because it's not, re we can't reduce it down to a natural property. He actually tries to say that, and because it isn't kind of um, any particular natural property that we can see in the world and come across, he tries to describe it as this non-natural property which again, before the show even started, we had kind of a bit of a, a discussion about what we mean by non-natural property because I'm, I'm not always 100% clear on some of these. You could probably give some better examples than I can, but the one that I frequently came across was the idea of things like mathematics and number. So, and I think this is the other part of the beauty of studying metaethics is it teaches you that it's not just moral properties that this is true. It just teaches you how many different types of property there are of things in the world anyway. Like we tend to think of property like as in color, right? So color is a property of a thing and it's simple. You can see it. You can point to it. You can identify exactly what the parameters of a, a yellow patch is. You can say where the boundaries of it are. But if I was to say something like five and I say I hold up, you know, somebody says, what, what does five, you know, what is five? Can you show me five? I could just go, I could write the number down. And they'd say, no, no, that's the number five. That's how you write it. I want to see five. And I can go, well, here, I'm holding up my hand, five fingers. There's five. And they'd say, no, 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 that's not five. That's just the way that five is appearing in the world at this point in time, because I'm just counting your fingers as five. That's just the way that I count them and collect them together. That There isn't five there for me to see. This person's misunderstanding what five is, that there is five fingers there. Five is a real thing about the number of fingers I have on that one hand. So in which case, what you've got there is a real property of the world. 
but it's not reducible down to some natural property that that there is this natural property in the world which is fiveness it's not that my fingers have fiveness it is that there are five fingers in the world and five is a real thing that things can be in the world now you'd have to deny that that was true and say no no no, that's not what's happening in order to kind of avoid this style of reasoning and go that's well that's no that's not what's happening but it is true things really are there really are five things in the world, you you would be strange if you denied that. And if you're willing to say, right, so there are sometimes properties which really do exist in the world, but you can't just straightforward point to them and say, there is there it is in itself. It's always mixed in with something else, but it's still there. Then you start to understand what he means by a non-natural property. And actually, you then start to realize that actually, yeah, there's loads of things that we describe as non-natural properties. Like even, I know this isn't necessarily a non-natural property, but when you talk about various things and, and they sort of say, well, a property is like the way something is and blah, blah, and you give colours and shapes, and then you start to think about things like, what about next to? X is, you know, the table is next to the chair. I can't point to the next to, but there really is a thing that is next to the, that is next to something else. And so once you've broken out of that boundary that basically a, a property, a real property in the world has to be this limited range of size, shape, color, texture, like what we might call, you know, kind of perceivable qualities, if you like, and that we already accept this wealth of other kinds of properties in the world, then that kind of non-naturalism starts to make a bit more sense. Great. That's really helpful, Ben. In fact, just to come in, as again, it might be another interesting kind of stretch exercise for, for students and, and, and teachers, just to think about the range of properties or features of the world, which might then also be good examples here. So just going back to naturalism we were talking about, right? So we, we're used to kind of tables and chairs and pointing and touching them and then perceivable qualities as Ben was saying with colour and sounds so then just start to go on from that think about things like love or photons right I mean you can't touch love you can't smell it you can't touch or smell photons but we think both of them exist but with both of those you might imagine there's some sort of reductivist or naturalistic accounts that's in the in the offering, right? So love might be reducible to some sort of psychological qualities. Sorry to disappoint everyone. Uh, and photons obviously are going to be sort of in the scientific mix. But then we can go on to some really interesting qualities, properties, features. And uh, certainly at university level and beyond, there's always lots of um, com- compare and contrast exercise between moral and evaluative properties and and mathematical ones like the the ben uh, ben was talking about so what is fiveness really interesting we mentioned plato so so there are platonists about uh, numbers there are other other positions as well so probably an exercise to think through all the things you could imagine being a property a quality a fact that we assume are and then try and think about how you might classify them great uh Paul, do you want to chip in with anything? Just a, a very quick one. I mean, it's, it's funny, isn't it, that um, I haven't taught this for a while, but I do remember 
um, teaching about yellow and putting up various yellow squares in various places and looking at them and trying to to analyze them or realizing that we couldn't analyze them. But of course, being yellow is a natural property, isn't it? Some things just are yellow. Uh, And it's maybe even a, a little bit of an irony or perhaps it might hint at a bit of a difficulty with trying to give an account of these non-natural properties, that obviously the one that really sticks for for Moore is that one about yellow, because he's using a natural property to make a point about non-natural properties. And it might start to make us kind of, whilst it's really interesting to uh, try and populate a kind of an ontology, what kinds of things exist out there, I'm still. I'm looking forward to when we start doing Mackie, uh, perhaps next next time, where we might start to worry about the oddity of some of the way in which we're trying to think about these things. Just wondering how these properties might exist, these these non natural properties, and we might feel. And there's always some students in, in my classes who are quite happy with just restricting their the things that exist to those kinds of things that we can actually detect in some way, or at least are in principle detectable. Um, by the, you know, under this kind of idea of naturalism. So whilst we're talking very easily, I think, Ben, you did a beautiful job of uh, making non-naturalism, especially ethical non-naturalism, uh, sound plausible. And I think, yeah, G. Moore would be thoroughly approving. We must, there's always that kind of voice in the back of my mind saying, well, what would John Mackey say? But also what would a lot of the sceptical students in my, in my class say when we start talking about these non-natural properties? So again, students, so the, the thought going on there might be the phrase you might hear is Occam's razor. So William of Occam was a medieval metaphysician. And Occam's razor is normally kind of wheeled out. And the idea is that you just cut out lots of all superfluous, redundant metaphysical claims. And perhaps non-natural properties are, are some of those. Yeah, just to, to round off one, one or two other thoughts from me so something we haven't mentioned but again you might see in in anything you're reading so there's a latin phrase that's often used with non-natural properties and that's sui generis s-u-i new word g-e-n-e-r-i-s and basically it's fancy latin that means of its own kind so think about all the things that that ben was saying so basically, and if a property is a non-natural property, it's of its own kind. It can't be identified with or reducible to something else, such as a natural property that we're familiar with, like being pleasurable or a supernatural property, anything else. It's, it's of its own kind, right? It's hard to, to describe it as a kind of default, but it kind of it kind of feels a bit like that to, to some people, right? We just can't make naturalism work. We can't make supernaturalism work. So, hey, it's, it's got to be a non-natural non-natural property, right? Perhaps then can I just take us on one notch to think about why positively we might want to be a non-naturalist and then think about the problems with the open question argument that that, that we'll, we'll think about. So I think that the nice thing about non-naturalism, which I think is a, is a problem that always, which gets a problem for, for naturalism and probably points to the power of the open question argument in that feel, which is, when we say that you know things pleasurable, but is it good? And there's that feeling that it's still an open question. It's a meaningful question to to raise. It's because things like good or right or wrong, they're not just features of the world. They're not just stuff, and we're pointing at them. So all this focus on ontology and metaphysics, we can just be as if we're picking things out in the world. 
But remember, our ethical lives are practical lives. And that's the that's a really important thing to remember when you're studying metaethics. That's what we're doing, trying to think about what it's like to be a kind of agent or a judge in the world, making moral judgments, acting, encouraging other people to act. And the idea of saying that something's good or right or wrong or courageous or heroic, where we might be judging things that have happened or recommending that people act in certain ways, is that these features or facts are kind of lively they're kind of recommending or they're kind of indicating they're obligate that we've got obligations they're making claims on us right so we can say look this thing's pleasurable this potential action that we could do it might maximize pleasure but should we do it is it good is it the right thing to do and the reason why there's a bit of power to the open question on why that question feels still open and meaningful is because we've got that gap. Here's how things are, but should we do it? So something when when you're reading, you might see the word normative, and that's it's a very hard word to define, but that's basically kind of the area that the word normative's going for, right? These are standards or norms. These are rules. These are principles. These are things that, that gives us reasons. These are things we ought to do that we should do. So something is pleasurable, but should we do it? And it's that sort of thing that that certainly is the the 20th century has gone on into the 21st that people think Moore's getting at, and that's where the power of the of the open question argument is. And it reaches back to another figure in history I mentioned right at the start, David Hume, and so that is ought gap, right? So here here are the is's. This is stuff that exists. This is kind of pain that's experienced or pleasure that's experienced or whatever it is, but ought we to do it or ought it to have been done? And that's really what's going on there in a lot of people think is what's going on with more and what's powering non-naturalism, right? So we, we can reduce or identify all of these supposed moral properties to stuff that exists, but we still can still ask the question, and should they be, should these actions be done? Should people behave in this way? And that's something that's really powerful, uh, I think, for non-naturalism. Uh, ben, Paul, any thoughts on on that? Yeah, I think with the with the non-naturalism, the stuff looking into it the past few few days, few weeks, and trying to get my head around a bit more of it. A lot of the stuff that I was looking at was kind of bringing it into the now and sort of saying, you know, how much it's moved on and how we all tend to think of it as like G more hundred years ago, more than a hundred years ago, and, and nothing's really happened since because. People like Mackie and AJ Eyre managed to show us that it was completely wrong and, and all that sort of stuff. And I think that what's actually what I found really interesting in doing the reading around it was how much of it does actually just tie into, and I suppose we can now use that word intuitions, but that idea of if we actually look at what we really do when we make ethical judgments, I mean, I'm not talking about moral philosophers, I'm talking about just people. Actually, non naturalism fits in quite neatly not only with that but because it's got this connection to this idea of intuitionism so this idea of this idea that the the claims that we make about morality or at least some of the claims that we make about morality are just self-evident that actually what happens is we're in a position and we see something happening if we go back to the case of the person being bumped into in the corridor the point is that somebody's bumped into into a co- into a, in a corridor and immediately kind of cognitively we pick up on the wrongness. Something happens in us where we go, well, that's not on, just immediately. 
And and then the, the point is, again, as you know, as various books have said, if you then ask somebody why that shouldn't have happened, they don't immediately go, well, think about the categorical imperative, or they don't even put it into their own words. They don't go, well, I was thinking, if I universalise that, then, you know, how would I, you know, achieve certain ends and wouldn't I negate the means by the very blah, blah. No, we don't. We just say, well, it's just wrong, isn't it? It's just like, I can see that it's wrong. You shouldn't do that. And we don't really know where to go on from there sometimes. And that's actually almost the the good point about this is you don't really need to go on than that maybe. Maybe we just get that stuff's wrong. Maybe we just get that stuff's right. And actually, this leads to what I think one of the big problems with naturalism is, which is that naturalism, because it's so reductive, it doesn't allow for, and I'm not necessarily saying that I am a pluralist necessarily, but it doesn't allow even for the scope that there might be other things which are good. It's very, no, this is good. We've nailed it. And actually, non-naturalism doesn't have to, because it's not saying necessarily that something is reduced down to something else, we can start to talk about the goodness of lots of different things because they're all good and they can be all good kind of in their own different separate way. And that also, when we were talking about Kant and we were talking about how he's so strict and he thinks everything's so neat, it actually points out why moral dilemmas happen. It's because something can be a, a single situation that you are in can be good and bad at the same time. And what do you do about that? It's kind of tough. It just is because that goodness is there and that badness is also there and it just kind of is. And while it doesn't necessarily give us any recommendations, it is willing to accept that there are some straightforward moral principles that we have that can come into conflict with each other and will because of the complexity of the world. And you can't just kind of necessarily normative ethics your way out of them all. I think that's what I found really kind of almost invigorating about reading about him kind of and more and going, actually, there's a, and Ross and Pritchard was actually, this seems to be describing, maybe not the non-naturalism, which is something that has to be introduced to you, but the way that they describe our ethical lives is possibly closer than, than, than Mill. I don't necessarily think about the pleasure and pain when I'm doing things necessarily. I think about whether they're right or wrong and I don't even think about the pleasure or pain necessarily. And that's what I quite enjoyed about it. Yeah, so the so Moore's uh, we should say nail it. So more this is all about Moore's intuitionism which has this metaphysical component of the non-naturalism. But really it's a kind of ep- I mean I always think of it anyway uh, as an epistemic claim, right? So you know how do we know about this stuff? Well it's it's you kind of see it or you can think about it. It, sometimes it may not be obvious, but it's self-evident, right? It's not something, you, it's empirical where you have to use scientific method to, to work things out. You kind of just think about it and sometimes you might just sense it. Um, and that's 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 the intuition. Paul, do you want to come in with um, one or two? Yeah, I was going to say, it's very interesting to listen to, to both what you and Ben were saying there, but a couple of points. Um, first of all, on the just seeing it. Now, obviously that that's a, a real strength because as, as Ben said, that does seem to be so often how we experience our, our ethical lives. You just, you just kind of see it's wrong and you kind of, you know, you, it would be very difficult to describe precisely how you've arrived at that or to give your reasons for it. It's just a matter of seeing, but of course it's that business of being just a matter of seeing that makes it very hard to try and work into a kind of convincing meta-ethical theory I guess because as soon as you try and say well what actually is going on here or how, how can I sort of convince you or give you reasons to to believe that that's the case and if if I end up just saying well 
you just kind of see it that buys and you just kind of grasp it by some sort of faculty of intuition and you're like well what, what's that then and it's just well it's that that thing you've got where you sense the wrongness of stuff and you're like well what, what's that is it is it in your head is it like where how, yeah and and you can see the difficulties that we're obviously going to discuss uh when Mackie goes to town on all of this uh, as well as other people but so whereas isn't it funny what often this happens to us in philosophy I think you get especially in, in moral philosophy almost the most attractive thing about a theory also contains within it the seeds of its of its kind of own downfall I guess where you can see that plausibility and it might even be a really accurate description of what goes on when you make your own judgments maybe we're going to end up with Wittgenstein saying it's one of those things that's yeah, this this is one of the things that can be that's better seen rather than tried to describe. And we should, you know, we, we actually shouldn't go in. You know, language runs out here. It's things that should be thought, not said. I don't know. We maybe we'll touch upon that again in more depth next time. The other thing, just to say though, on the attractions of non-naturalism, there is that tendency, and a lot of my students have it. There's a lot of our kids do are very into their sciences and do philosophy as one of the ones that sort of complements the sciences. And there is that sense, isn't there, that if you're a thoroughgoing naturalist of a certain kind, every question is ultimately a scientific question. And all of those nice examples that Simon was giving about the elegance of a hat, students seem to want or seem to believe that really, just if the science gets good enough, and perhaps that's what they're going to do once they finish their sixth form studies, they're going to come up with the right neuroscience or whatever. We're going to answer that question that the property of being elegant is in fact ultimately reducible to a certain description of you know, the, the fibres in your brain. And I'd like to resist that tendency. <laughs> I like to think that kind of non-naturalism is, is helpful in pointing out why we might, you know, it gives us some resources to resist what we might describe as scientism rather than you know, science. So that kind of... Yeah, just some thoughts from me, just in a way, again, trying to pause and, and think about where we've, where we've got to and I probably there's a few things buzzing around my head and I'll probably miss them all out but something you said Paul which I think is is really really important for for any students to to grasp and that's about you know that the, the attractions of one are kind of often sowing the seeds of the destruction and in fact the way I present all of this stuff in metroethics again linking to that thought so much of this stuff is involved with each with it with itself is that actually a lot of metaethics, and this this sounds rather cynical, but I'll say it anyway. It's about just choosing a position and planting a flag and saying, "I'm going to defend this one," right? Because you know there are going to be some disadvantages to it, and the disadvantages are going to be reflected in some of the advantages of the other position. And what's really interesting is going through all these positions and stances and think about the different things about the ontology, the language all the various questions and just thinking it all through as a great big wave of these different stances you can take and thinking what's really going on with morality and you can only do that if you plant your flag in in you know in some th- in some position to defend but uh, but there there we are i think just uh, something that that ben mentioned which i think is really interesting just going back to all the example of five and five fingers and five stones and five buns and whatever yeah but but they're five buns where's five right because actually you, one can think about it you know non-naturalism is just more but in fact non-naturalism is is kind of a fairly popular view at the moment. I mean, it's still quite a minority view, but but basically all the cool kids are non-naturalists, such as me, right? And actually, that there's a kind of pattern idea of non-naturalism, right? So 
take any particular situation and you could describe it in perhaps even describe it in non-evaluative, non-normative, natural terms, right? But then you've got lots of situations like that. All of them might be good, but they'll be quite a different set of properties, features, facts at the natural level. And the thing that connects them might only be the idea that they're good or elegant or whatever it might might be. So he, so it perhaps uh, King Ed's in Birmingham, perhaps some of your students do get really clever and after six months of these do find the reduction that can that can do it. But no one's found it yet. And so the idea of non-naturalism might be, yeah, perhaps it's 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 the it's the the thing that makes the pattern that makes all of these different seemingly very disjunctive situations actually come together and it's the fact that they're good or they're bad or they're right or they're honorable or whatever else whatever else they are and that's what convinces a lot of people to be to be non-naturalists okay so should we backtrack then and just as a way to round things off just think about problems with moore's open question argument which will lead us back to to naturalism. So does someone want to introduce kind of at least what one of the key key problems with the with the OQA? If we're going to do one of them, shall I do H2O and water and then that leads to talk about Mackie? Yeah, yeah. That's good. Because that that would be fair, I think, to get you to <laughs> you've been dying to talk about Mackie. So I can give you <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that the big thing is if we go back to that initial argument, the it was that idea of and one of the things I mentioned was that if happiness and goodness are the same thing, then ultimately the words happiness and goodness are referring to the same thing. They're pointing to the same property in the world. So you can think about that in any case where you've got somebody who's got um, a real name and a, and a fake name, that both of those names point to the same person, but they're two just two different words, two different sets of words. The thing is with the, the example with this is that that what more seems to be saying is that if two things are identical in their properties, so we can might call that ontologically reducible, then that means that the two words themselves or the two phrases themselves must have the same meaning. That is, they're analytically reducible. There's loads of other ways in which this can be described. You might find it in books about intention, extension, about sense and reference. It's all kind of the same thing that you don't have to worry about until you, whatever year of university where you have to worry about the subtle differences. But the main the main idea is that you can have two different names for one thing. And Moore is trying to say, well, if that was the case, then the two names would mean the same thing. And it's not true. So if you think about the fact that people can know what water is, and they have known what water is for many, 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 many centuries, thousands of years, and they could correctly identify water, and they could talk about water, and they understood how water fitted into their lives and all that sort of stuff. And then at some point, we discovered the chemical formula for water. So we understood then that it was H2O. Now, that means that on one level, yes, I can use the word H2O wherever I'm talking about water, and I can use the word water wherever I'm talking about H2O. And because both point to the same liquid, I could say I've just been drinking a glass of water, or I could be pretentious and say I've been drinking a glass of H2O, and it both means the same thing. But actually, those two things don't mean the same thing. Because if they did, then if I went back, let's say, a thousand years and said, can somebody take me to the H2O? Can somebody show me some H2O? 
they wouldn't know what I was talking about. They don't know what H2O is. So if you imagine a scenario then where I say to them, oh, H2O is water. And then the person says, really, is H2O really water? I could say, yes, they are. One's simply the chemical name for it. And the other one is the, the ordinary language word that you use, in which case we've just asked an open question about two things which are ontologically identical, but it's still an open question. So that would seem to suggest that actually the open question argument is based upon a bit of faulty reasoning here, that because two things would be the same property, they must also have the same meaning. But language is kind of independent of that. And therefore, you don't prove anything about things ontologically by talking about the language that you're using. Great. That was really, really helpful, Ben. Yeah. And just then to expand that and just to go back to what we were saying earlier on about naturalism and, and let's stick with water and H2O because that's the classic, classic example. So you're right. I mean, right now, I mean, if I say this is water, but is it H2O or this is H2O, but is it water? I mean, many people around the world would go, well, yeah, of course it is. Right. But there would have been a point in history where someone, you know, let's say ancient Greece or ancient China, and someone would have said, this is water, but is it H2O? They'd have looked at you and gone, what are you saying? That's just gibberish, <laughs> right? And then there would have been a point in the rise of modern science where someone would have said, this is water, but is it H2O? Where people wouldn't have thought it was gibberish. They would have thought it was a genuinely interesting question. And it would have had, now notice the connection, everyone, it would have had an open feel to it. This is water, but is it H2O or is it something else? Aha, let's investigate it, right? So think back to what we were saying about pleasure and goodness and so on, right? This is pleasurable, but is it good? It has an open feel to us now. Does that prove anything, right? Because it might be that some students from King Ed's in Birmingham or King's in Stourbridge or somewhere else, come along and actually, through some very clever bit of science, some massive international project, they actually find out that this type of pleasure is in fact goodness. And so what seems like an open feel to a question for us now, then disappears just as it disappeared with water and H2O. One of the other ways in which I get students to think about this, because sometimes they think it's kind of strange because of exactly what you're talking about, the development of the science. Surely people would have known that. I try and do it the other way around sometimes and imagine that there's somebody who knows what water is, but they're doing chemistry lessons. So they go to school and they've got a particular sort of scientific purist teacher who just wants to do pure chemistry. He doesn't want to bring any of this nonsense from the outside world. And he teaches them just about chemical bonds and that sort of, and, and all that sort of stuff. And he's talking about this stuff called H2O and all the stuff that it can do. And then one day somebody's, you know, this student who's been in this class goes out and somebody says, somebody says, oh, you know, it, as a joke, maybe goes, oh, nice glass of H2O. And they go, what, what do you mean by that? And they, well, it's H2O, isn't it? They go, is it? Yeah, water's H2O. Is water really H2O? <laughs> you could imagine that that it's a revelation. Like, yeah, and, and so for them, it is. it does have that open feel. It just, because they could go on to, well, all water is H2O. 
Like, even when it's ice, what, even when it's steam, it's H2O. Like, what happens if I put orange juice in it? Does that, is it still H2O? There's all these other questions that come to it, which apparently wouldn't happen if those two things were, were you know, according to GE Moore, you know, if those things were identical. But of course they're, you know, of course they're um, identical. Great. Okay. So listen, let's, um, we've gone through an awful lot there. Let's just pause and then try and wrap things all together. Because even though there's this major problem with the open question argument, some people are still quite sceptical that the naturalists can do what we've just been describing around water and H2O. There's still that kind of real suspicion. Okay, perhaps in theory you could, but could you really get from pleasure or some other natural property to goodness? And then all those thoughts I had earlier on about the is-ought gap from Hume and normativity, they kick in because water and H2O are, are kind of still natural things. They just perceived in different ways, whereas goodness or rightness or duty, they're kind of normative properties. They're getting us to do stuff in the world. Like we've got reasons, we've got oughts, we've got shoulds. That seems a very different sort of character from from natural things. So people still think they're still likely to be that open field. They, we won't we won't have a group of scientists who'll come along and reduce normative, evaluative properties, moral properties to, to, to natural things. So there's still that big battle going on. But what we see through the 20th century is then people saying, okay, more, we'll take you on. What's really going on with our language, right? Perhaps actually in our language, we think we're pointing at, at, at real things in the world, but actually perhaps something else is going on. Perhaps we're expressing our emotions or expressing commands and then there's other sorts of people who come along and say well we might think we're saying that there really is real moral stuff out there but actually we're in complete error because these properties and features are just so weird and of course that sets the scene for air and emotivism and hair and prescriptivism and Mackey and error theory right and those are kind of big people big topics that we'll come on to with the with part two on metaethics with anti-realism uh in this episode we've started to think about metaethics you know we're really going beyond ethical judgments and normative ethical stances wondering what's going on with morality and then we've done a huge amount of work thinking about different sorts of moral realism dividing between naturalism and non-naturalism and Moore's open question argument, which is a kind of key argument in the in the history of metaethics. So I think we've probably exhausted you, and I think we've probably exhausted Paul and Ben as well. Um, so we should thank Paul and Ben for all their thoughts. So Paul, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you. It was really a, a pleasure to be involved with with that. I learned a lot as as ever with these podcasts. So uh, thank you to you both and to everyone. For and Ben, great to have you as well. No, thank you very much. Always good to be here. Thank you very much for having me back. Good. And uh, we'll see you both uh, for the next episode where we do Metaethics Part 2. And all being well, you'll be with us and joining us listening to that. Mm-hmm.